Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. It's episode 231 right now. And before we have Mark and Will introduce our esteemed guests today, just want to touch on our audience. I want to thank our 20,700 subscribers. That's without our Spotify numbers, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitchers, where you can stream us. We should get our numbers in tomorrow, and the word has it we're going to double in terms of our subscribers, over 40,000 subscribers. So audience in 72 countries right now, grassroots to MLB front offices. we got the ears of all the right people. All we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ out there. We want to thank all of you guys. Just remember to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. The rate and review allows us to battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they have to do in baseball. We have, we're, not a, we're not immune to that either. And as I remind our audience each time, this show, like all of our shows, has no time for the uncomfortable, has no time for candy coating things for you guys. And we're going to hit the uncomfortable truths about baseball, about life. We'll get you right between the eyes. So with that, uh, Mark, I don't know if I've got a bigger response from a promo to a guest and I've gotten, that's no pressure on our guest today because he's been through all the wars, but then this guest that you guys brought forward today. So with that, I want to turn it over to you and Will and introduce our guest. Yeah, I'm really pleased. I saw your promo on like Facebook, I guess it was, that we're having Leo Mazzoni on. I knew that would send a, a lot of tidal wave through our podcast and our listeners because they want to get a lot of information from Leo, who's one of the greatest pitching coaches of all time. Um, really fortunate to have Leo as a friend and and uh, a colleague. We, we coached against each other for years, even in the World Series. Um, you know, it's always been a pleasure uh, coaching against Leo and managing against Leo in the minor leagues. So we go a long ways back, and uh, he's one of my few guests that's the same age as I am. So <laughs> most of those guys are dead and buried, you know what I'm saying? Anyway. Uh, I'm going to go through this. He's got quite a bio. Um, I think if you, people will find it interesting. Um, uh, I uncovered a few things that people might not know about Leo. First of all, Leo grew up in Cumberland, Maryland. Um, he signed, played high school ball there, was a star high school player. In 66, he signed with the San Francisco Giants. He ended up playing 11 years in the minor leagues with the Giants organization and the Mexican League and also the, the Oakland A's minor leagues. Um, that's where, where he got into, into managing and coaching was that uh, Sid Thrift was running the minor leagues for the Oakland A's, and uh, he asked uh, Leo if he'd like to go into managing, thought he'd be a great candidate, and so that's where Leo kind of started his career managing some independent leagues. He was scouted by uh, renowned uh, scout Paul Snyder, with the, with the Atlanta Braves as a manager and uh, coach and uh, was eventually, uh, he recommended Hank Aaron, who was running the Atlanta Braves and Hank hired him as a minor league pitching coach. He had mentors like Johnny Sane. He coached under Bobby Cox for most of the entire career and, uh, and did a lot of things in the minor leagues. He managed independent leagues. He did some, uh, he was a minor league pitching coach in the Atlanta Braves organization, was stops at Santa, uh, Savannah, uh, Durham, Sumter, Greenville, and Richmond, even managed some in Greenville. Um, in 1985, they took him out of his minor league job and, and had him go up and spend some time with Johnny Sane as the assistant pitching coach 
1985 with the Braves. I don't know if too many people know that. Um, that was his first time in the big leagues. Went back to the minor leagues, uh, kept honing his skills, and then showed up in 1990 as the major league pitching coach through 2005, all under under Bobby Cox uh, for 16 years. And tremendous, tremendous outcome and tremendous job. Um, in 2006, 2007, um, he coached with the Baltimore Orioles uh, with his lifetime friend, also from Cumberland, Sam Perlazzo. Uh, he's been uh, a special advisor to Furman University and done some color commentating, and he's on numerous radio shows and, and t- TV broadcasts uh, quite often. Um, in 2022, uh, he got elected to the the uh, Atlanta Braves Hall of Fame. He's the only coach that was ever elected that Hall of Fame. And if you look at the list, you're going to see some pretty impressive guys like Hank Aaron and Chipper Jones and Bobby Cox and many, many more. Uh, so that's quite that's quite a feather in his cap to be the only coach on the Atlanta Braves Hall of Fame plaques. Um, ESPN, he was, uh, they named him one of the top assistant coaches of all time. Um, we're talking about any sport. Um, he was voted number three of the top 50 pitching coaches of all time. And in 2005, he, his pitching staff ranked in, I mean, in 1998, his pitching staff ranked number one in all of baseball history. And in 1993, they were fourth all time. Um, his coaching credits, 14 postseasons, 14 to 15 National League East division titles, five National League pennants, one World Series title, 11 all-star pitchers, uh, four ERA titles, nine 20-game winners, six Cy Young Award winners, four Hall of Famers. Um, it's, it's unbelievable the impact that he had on these guys. Um, Here's some accomplishments of some of his pitchers. Tom Glavin, Cy Young Award in 91 and 98, 20-game winner four times. John Smoltz, Cy Young Award winner in 96, 20-game winner one time. Most all-time uh, – uh, I think I messed that up. Anyway, Greg Maddox, uh, he, won, he won three Cy Young Awards – uh, 20-game winner twice, ERA champion four times. Uh, and here's a couple guys that came and joined the club, and this just shows the impact that that <clears throat> that Leo could have on pitchers. He had Denny Nagel. He was a 20-game winner, and Russ Ortiz, another 20-game winner. Um, these guys came from other organizations and never had as good a year as they did with Leo. He's had uh, all-star pitchers. He's had... Great other pitchers like Stanton, McMichael, Naylor, uh, Bedrosian, Rocker, a lot of great pitchers that weren't even all-star pitchers. And I always like to mention that uh, all-star catchers, because, uh, you know, I know Leo and I both, we work very close with the catchers. And uh, and there's always, a, we feel like we have an impact on the catchers. And it's always nice when you see that he had three all-star catchers in Estrada, Lopez, and Olsen all under his toolage. And, and that's something that gets missed a lot as far as uh, coaching is concerned. Um, 
I will start off. We're great to have you, Leo. I know I was a, a long bio, but when you've done as much as you have, it takes time to say it all. Well, I think it takes time since I'm the same age as you now. You know, I mean, it's going to take time to cover that kind of stuff. But I'm, I, I always looked at you with great respect across the way. And uh, I'm just tickled to death to uh, be able to talk baseball with you. I know we talked last week. Hell, we were on the phone for over an hour and a half talking about pitching in the game and really enjoyed it. And uh, I've always had tremendous amount of respect for you and uh, and all the great work that you did. I watched our, our game the other day, the World Series game with you and Hargrove in your dugout and me and Bobby and ours. And you know what? It was it was it was it was great to just even reminisce. So. Thank you very much. And let me tell you something, Omar. I got a question to ask. Who and who's number one and number two? If I did all that, and who's the, and I'm only three? I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, this is the the strange thing, and I will hit on this a little bit. I didn't have it on my <laughs> initial questions, but you know, they've got sports risers in the Hall of Fame. You know, they got general managers in the Hall of Fame. They've got they're managers in the Hall of Fame. They got players in the Hall of Fame. There's no coaches in the Hall of Fame. And I never could. I've asked people that before, and I've never, I never did get an answer. You know, they don't have an answer. I don't know. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, there's many guys I don't know. But of the person guys that I personally coached against, I'd say you, Dave Duncan, Ray Miller, Mel Stottlemyre would be right up there. Um, guys that should be considered for the Hall of Fame. And I also think that there should be consideration for position coaches. You know, like, you know, we've mentioned that Sam Perlazzo was one of your best friends growing up, but Sam coached on a lot of championship teams, a lot of playoff teams, World Series teams um, for different managers and different teams. He had tremendous impact on on infielders. Uh, with his coaching, you know, he could be considered, or Charlie Lau could be considered, Dave McKay, yeah. who's coached for over 30-some years. The impact they have on players is unbelievable, you know. And uh, I really think that there should be some kind of committees. Hey, they like to do committees in the Major League Baseball, right? Why don't they put yeah. a committee together to consider a wing of the, of the, of the Hall of Fame for coaches? That, that would be awesome. I know, you know, how about, you know, you, I think of Johnny Sane, I think is the greatest pitching coach ever in the history of the game. And then, and then you look at some of those guys that coached third for so long. I'm giving away my age, but what Frankie Crosetti coached for the third base for the Yankees for how many years? I mean, oh yeah, you know, a ton. I mean, there's a lot of great coaches that uh, had an impact on guys, but you know, uh, it's just, uh, and, and it created a tremendous relationship and, uh, among the players and the coaches and, also, you had to be a sounding board for a few things, as you well know. So, but anyway, uh, yeah, I was just kidding about that. But who knows? Uh, maybe someday they'll get, uh, you know, a guy like Sane, who was uh, also pitched and pitched great, 24-game oh, winner yeah. this and that. So, he, uh, we, we Mel Stottlemyre was the same way. Yeah. He was a really good pitcher. He was yeah. a great pitcher. Yeah, he was a great pitching coach. Yeah, yeah. He sure was. I mean, a lot of good pitching coaches. And I think the other thing, too, is when I get together with a lot of, like, especially with Bobby Cox or somebody, we talk about the minor leagues almost more than we do the big leagues. Uh, Mark, talking about what we did, like you talking about a a playoff game in Charlotte or, you know, winning the Governor's Cup in Richmond or, 
you know, even in the, in the minor leagues, getting on those buses and climbing up on top of the luggage rack to go to sleep because you had to pitch <laughs> the next day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's something that people don't think yeah. about. Yeah, I spent 24 years in the minors. And you know what? People say, how could you have done that? I say, because I loved every minute of it. I loved coaching in the minors. I loved and you and you know both of us had to persevere for such a long time in order to uh, uh, live our our childhood dreams. And uh, you know they say, well, you know you had this guy, this guy. I said, wait a minute. I spent 24 years in the minor leagues, just like a lot of other guys did, and they didn't get the opportunity. I said we earned that right to be there. And the bottom line is this: regardless of all that we did, my 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 the thing that I'm most proud of, and I'm sure you are too, is that was the health of your pitching staffs and the no sore arms. And the, and that's when you were a pitching coach in the minor leagues. That's how you got to the big leagues. Because if your staffs in the minors had sore arms, you weren't going anywhere. Matter of fact, you weren't going to stay in the minors very long. Well, that, you know, that was, that leads me into my first question is that you had such great uh, 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 job of keeping your pitchers healthy. What was important to you? Uh, and probably still is all the way from the minor leagues to the major leagues. I think I know, but I'd like you to say what it is. Right. I mean, I, I think it was basically throwing more often with less exertion. And so I got the guys on the mound as often as I could to to perfect their craft. And But you had to control the, uh, the amount of effort being put forth. I wanted them to acquire feel, touch, good spins on your pitches, backspin, you know, uh, throw turn and pull, breaking balls, change of speeds all those things that we practiced without going full bore. And then, and then what we wanted to do was create accuracy as far as pinpoint location. And if you could teach a guy to go out and pitch and, and, and trust that 95% effort would work and over a hundred percent would not, then as over a period of time, you created that feel for them. And then they saw that they didn't have to really, work so darn hard to get the job done. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that's not the case today, but, you know, it was all based on more often with less exertion. And, uh, uh, of course, Johnny Sane taught me a lot about the right spins on pitches and, uh, and, uh, the spin rates, which were back, we had them back in that day. And, uh, you know, pitch counts were, I had a clicker, but I used to cheat on it every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, he threw a good pitch. I count that one. I'm not counting that one. You know, I, Anyway, uh, and it got to be a joke where Bobby would say, is that the real counter? Is it yours? But then baseball ruined that by putting the pitch clocks up, pitch counts up on the wall. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, to me, it's the it's the effort. I mean, I'd have to recommend to take a guy out after five innings, even though he threw 75 pitches, but he was freaking all over the place. He had no feel. Yeah. He was exhausted. Yeah. He was exhausted at 75 pitches where I had guys throw 125 that weren't tired at all because right. they, they were, they were like you said, their rhythm was good. They commanded the ball. Well, Mark, here's something you'll like. Uh, uh, it's one, it's one of the geniuses of uh, people like Bobby Cox and Johnny saying was it, they felt it was more important to, to know it during the course of a game, what inning was the pitcher going to max out his effort? In other words, if he's going into the sixth or seventh, Forget the five. That's, you know, we ain't worried about five. That's, today's game, you go five. I mean, to me, that's a joke. But, go, you know, go into the sixth, seventh inning. Leo, is he going to max out his effort? Yep, he's going to max it out. He goes, well, he says, we're going to get somebody ready because pitch count's really not going to matter. And then if he was going into the sixth or seventh and he wasn't going to max out his effort, well, we're going to ride him longer then if he's not going to max out. 
I said, no, he feels he's pretty much under control right now where he doesn't have to jacket jacket way up. And then that way, uh, pitch count didn't matter because, you know, he was he was uh, under control with everything. So those are things that were kind of more important to us than the actual number of pitches that he was throwing. And then you had certain pitchers like Russ Ortiz when we got him from the Giants. You know, he was always pretty good in San Francisco. But I and I thought I asked Russ, I said, how come they traded you to, to, to us? Because when they said I walked too many people. I said, well, I don't care how many you walk. You walk. He says, you don't. I said, no, as long as I don't score. Well, you know what? He didn't care about it either anymore. But here's the key. Russ was a high pitch count guy, but he was strong as a bull. We won 22 games, but, you know, you'd look up in the fifth inning and go, man, he's, 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 he's you know, he's, he's closing in on 80, 85 pitches. And Bobby would look at me and say, we're just kicking in now, isn't he, Leo? I said, yeah. Because the longer he went, the better he got. And, uh, that was just his style. If Maddox was on the mound, he was done at 110 because he was so efficient in what he did that, you know, 110 was the same as somebody else throwing 130. Uh, right. Glavin was never got tired hardly at all, except in that game against you guys, that one to nothing game after eight innings. He committed, he committed dugout and said, I'm, I'm tired, Leo. I'm mentally tired. I said, are you sure? <laughs> said, are you Are you sure? He goes, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's what's missing today. What's, what's missing today is the eye test. You know, they don't, there's either there isn't enough coaches with experience to be able to do that or nobody trusts them or they've just turned it over to the analytic people to tell you when to take somebody. But you, you hit on it perfectly. You know, every guy's different, you know, yeah. guys that are really efficient, they still may get tired at 110. Right. There's other guys that can go 130, 135. And on a given day, they just throw more. Maybe there's more foul balls, but there are strike throwers. They're not putting any extra stress on themselves. And I like what you said about, you know, the effort. Is his effort kicking up? Is his effort going to kick up? And those are the things that pitching coaches and managers that are experienced, that's what we determine what we're going to make decisions on. No question about it. No question about it. Now, you know what? Let's let's don't we don't want to sound like old fuddy duds, and I don't believe we are at all. I think that that there is a place in the game for some analytics, but that's not the that's not gonna govern everything that you do. You know, it's not gonna govern, well, do we leave him in, do we take him out? Well, let's see, he goes around the lineup a third time. If I would have been uh what is it, Snell from the Tampa Bay in that playoff game where they took him out. And was it the World Series or a playoff game? We had one more World nine Series. The World Series. Yeah, the World Series. You know what? If I was him, I wouldn't have come off the mound. I'd have stayed there and said, I ain't coming I was, out. And, you know, I was watching the same game, and I'm thinking the same thing. But they're yeah. so programmed that they've lost their competitive edge deep in games because they never go deep in games. That's you right. Know, my My argument is this, is that, Nothing great can happen anymore with a pitcher. You can't have a guy strike out 20 guys in a game anymore. You 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 can hardly have a guy throw a no-hitter anymore. No, they're taking him out they, all the they time. They take him out. You know, it's like these are some of the greatest things that happen in Major League Baseball against the greatest competition, and now we're not going to see it anymore. They come up with all these new rules and all these new things and and, and, the, and the analytics and all the stuff – they don't understand that you might as well put an asterisk by everything now yeah. because 
it's the same as steroids in reverse. We're not allowing guys to do things. So, so you know, like, and, and, and it's going to be the same thing with, with uh, I'll jump into the, the bigger bases. Let's say guys start stealing a lot of bases. Well, let's put an asterisk on it because they're not Ricky Henderson. Because Ricky That's Henderson right. had to I mean, no, it, come on, this, you're changing the entire game. And you're right. not limited to how many times you're allowed to throw over either. No. The, you know, that's the other thing, you know. We, I don't you know, get you, that one. I really don't. I don't mind the, the pitch clock and all that because you. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we, we both were preaching, pick up your tempo, yeah. pick up your tempo, let's Always. go. All the time. So I don't mind the pitch clock at all. I mean, but I and, and if you want to make bigger bases, I don't care, but you, 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 you can't not – keep the pitcher from throwing over there as much as he wants. I mean, what do you want to do? Just call timeout and say, well, go to second. You're going to be safe. Let's move on. Yeah. So. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Now I, I got another question that, you know, because you work with Bobby and he was such a phenomenal manager, uh, how did he rely on you like before and during the games? I mean, what, what were some of the things he wanted you to give him? Well, you mean, uh, uh it was all about, uh, what he want what he wanted from me was the status mentally and physically of every pitcher that was that they were that was going to either start or he was thinking of bringing in relief that night. In other words, how so and so doing? Can we use so and so tonight? Uh, can we use Rocker two nights in a row? Can we use uh, Smoltzy when he was closing? You know, can we use him this way? Can we use him three out of four down the road here? You know, stuff like that with your starting pitchers is pretty well, uh, uh, you know. Well, he's, everything's good. There's nothing crazy going on. Um, and that's what he wanted to know. It was more about what his pitchers were uh, doing and how they felt mentally and physically. And because, uh, you know, there was a there was one time when Bobby taught me a lesson. You guys will love this. Bobby taught me a lesson. We were in 91. We finally caught the Dodgers out on the West Coast and uh, caught them to time for first place. So now the next day in L.A., we're playing for first place with both teams tied. And Smoltz's got a five to nothing lead. And in the fifth inning, he starts to get a little out off whack, you know, wild pitch, couple walks, blue pit, da, da, da. You know, I go out and tell him, you know, I said, look, you're not in any trouble. You know, you're one, one pitch away from an out. I said, you know, and uh, this and that, but he was letting the ball game get, start to race on him because John was real young then. And uh, so I went back in the dugout and then it got to be five to three, with runners on second and third and two outs in the fifth. Bobby goes, think we should take him out? I said, no, I think I'd, you know, I'd, I'd give him one more hitter. He goes, I don't care. I'm going to take him out anyway. I said, well, you're the manager. You can do what you want. I don't care. So this went back and forth. You don't want me to take him out, do you? I said, well, you asked me. I've always done I said, no, I don't take him out. And he'd go back. Uh, then if he was, I don't give a damn. I'm taking him out. I said, well, go ahead and take him out. <laughs> so anyway, when he walked out to the mound, I took my hat off and scratched my head like, what in the world was that all? You know, so anyway, Smoltzy comes in and sits down next to me. He says, what's going on? I said, well, you were fixed to blow it. That's what's going on. <laughs> so I was taking it out on Smoltz because Bobby was mad at me. But anyway, so now he goes back in. He doesn't speak to me the rest of the game, guys. He doesn't say a word. And I'm thinking, I wonder who ticked him off, you know. And I went, uh-oh, maybe Smoltzy flipped him the ball because he would not allow a pitcher to flip him the ball out on the mound, and then the pitcher couldn't leave till the reliever got to the mound. He couldn't leave to go in the dugout. And um, 
So anyway, we end up winning the game. So we're in the Dodger clubhouse and Mark, you know, that little coach's room there in the Dodger yeah. clubhouse, you know, Hey, Bobby goes that the way to go. Leo, come on in, in, in my office and shut the door. So I went in his office. I said, well, I'm going to find out who ticked him off now. So I went in the office and shut the door and he goes, you ever take your damn hat off and scratch your head again when I'm making a decision? Don't you ever do that. And I'm going, so now I'm, you know, I'm going, I didn't, I, I didn't know I was doing it. I didn't do it on purpose or nothing. And then he goes, you didn't want me to take him out, did you? I said, we back on that again? He, goes, he says, yeah. He goes, you didn't want me to take him out. I said, well, you asked me and I didn't want to take him out. No, I didn't want to take him out. He goes, I didn't either, Leo. I said, what? He said, I didn't want to take him out either. He said, I'm going, he said, sit down here a minute. He said, I'm going to tell you why I took him out. I said, okay. He said, we are now in a pennant race. He says, we have now caught the Dodgers. And I do not want to hear the word potential anymore out of our young rotation. He said, I want results. And I'm sending a message to that rotation that I'm not going to put up with somebody just giving some runs away in the, in the middle of a ball game. He said, I didn't want to take him out either, but that's why I took him out. to Teach your other starter, young starters a lesson that now we're in a pennant race. None of this old boy is going to be good down the road. No more. And I said, I said, I said, man, he says, now, what do you think of that? I said, I think it's the smartest thing I ever heard. He goes, good, get the hell out of here. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. But see, now, that's, see the that's point, a great story. Well, you know, I, I remember re seeing interviews with, uh, with Smoltz when he was young, when he first came up and he wasn't very good. Right. And and he got to a point, and I, I don't know, it was something like the all-star break, and he thought he might get sent down. And Bobby yeah, he was 2-11. 2-11. And Bobby stuck with him. Yes, he did. He said, you know what? He said, we ain't sending him nowhere. He said to the front office, he says, we're not sending him anywhere. He's the best 2-11 pitcher I've ever seen. <laughs> and, you know, here's, here's something, too, Mark, that to show you what's missing in the game today with coaching. We got we made the trade for Smoltzy, right? And we got him for Doe Alexander. Well, Doe right. Alexander went over and helped the Tigers win, go to the World Series or win the pennant. And Smoltzy's with us. So Bobby says, I want you to go down to Sarasota with him. You take him on the backfield, just you and him one-on-one. -on -one. He said, we got other pitching coaches down there for the rest of the guys. He says, just you and him. So I get down there, and I'm in the backfield with him. I'm going to have my very first session with him. And after about five pitches, he goes, oh, 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 oh my front leg, my front side. Da, da, da. I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I, I'm supposed to do this with my front side. I said, I never told you to do nothing yet. He goes, no. He said, when I was in Detroit, I said, you're not in Detroit, John. You're here. And I said, I want you to do me one favor, and I won't ask anything else of you. He goes, what's that? He said, would you wind up and throw the ball the way you want? Mechanics out the window. Just wind up and throw it the way you want. And you know what, Mark? He wound up and threw it the way he wanted. It was a beautiful delivery. And I sat there, and I, even I looked at it, and I went, I looked at him, and I said, okay, that's good. And he goes, he thought I was lying. I said, John, I'm not lying. That's a perfectly, no. perfect delivery, you know. And then so after about a week or two, we get him in a game. He strikes out the side. But then Bobby calls me up and says, Leo, how's Smoltzy doing? I said, he's doing great, Bobby. I said, good fast, good live fastball. And I said, he's come up with a great breaking ball. He goes, that's BS. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you, he can't be doing it that fast. I said, well, he's pitching Thursday afternoon. Come on down and watch him pitch. He goes, I am, but don't tell nobody he's come. I'm coming, you know. He comes down, hides in the back of the press box. Smoltzy pitches five innings and strikes out eight. Walks off the mound. So after we're done, of course, Bobby and I are going to go drink some beers. And he says, how did you do that? 
I said, I let him be himself. That's all I said. Nothing else. I let him be himself. And that's all I did, except for, you know, showing him some little things on breaking stuff. But delivery-wise, it was beautiful. So Sparky Anderson's coming across the field the next year in spring training. Hey, Mazzoni, where's that Mazzoni guy? I said, I'm right here. Sparky goes, he goes, how in the hell did you get Smoltz straightened out? I said, I let him be himself. He goes, smartest thing I ever heard. <laughs> well, you know, you know that, that that's a perfect example yeah. of what we what guys have to deal with today. You know, we get all these guys out of college, high school even, that they're so tied to Rapsodo and and, and and all the other technologies that, yeah. you know, they got so many things cluttered in their minds. I can't tell you how many times I've told pitchers throwing aside when they were just, they were paralyzed. They were paralyzed because they were thinking so much about mechanics and so much yeah. about analytics that I'd have to say, listen, I want you to get the ball and throw it. I want you to get it back and throw it. I want you to keep throwing. I want you to have a nice upbeat tempo. I don't want you to think about anything. All I want you to do is see the glove, let your body take the ball to the glove. Mm -hmm. And guys start throwing in the same guy that was all over the place five minutes before that. Now he's just pounding the strike zone and looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah. no question that's about a it. perfect example, your story about John Smoltz. Today it's even worse because you got more guys that are doing that. Oh, it's I see deliveries now and everybody's flying out to the th right handers are flying out to the first base side with a, their back legs swinging around and going way up in the air and stuff. And, you know, you can you you can see where uh, 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 so many guys have that are raising the risk of arm injury. And it's being caused by the people that run the run the pitching, because, you know, if, if you base everything on feel and touch and, and baseball and the pitching now is. Don't throw much, but when you do, throw as hard as you can. And it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that uh, 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 that's the way they want to run things. But, you know, that's just the way it is, I guess. But, you know, you, you take a guy out, out after a no-hitter no after five innings, Mark, I would expect that guy to go in the dugout and break everything apart. Well, you, you know, the, the amazing thing is, is that all the years that I coached, a majority of the staffs – I didn't have that many different starting pitchers through the whole no. year, you know, and many times it was a leg injury or foot or ankle. It wasn't even the arm that took them out for like 10 days. And, you know, when I go back to that 95 world series, you know, I had that rotation. I had some older guys. Mm -hmm. You had phenomenal pitching. We had won the ERA title in the, in the American league. You'd won it in the national league. Yeah. We're competing. Those are the same pitchers I basically had the whole year, just like you did. They didn't yeah. get hurt and stuff. We never, we never skipped guys. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, this here's another genius of Bobby Cox. When at the end of the '90 season, Bobby, Bobby and I got up there June 22nd, and you know, Glavin had a good September, and and Steve Avery was just growing, uh, learning. Uh, uh, Smoltz was starting to show a little something, and Pete Smith, and they had the veteran Charlie Liebrand. Well. The last day of the season, Bobby told me to get these those five guys out to the ballpark at uh, two o'clock before everybody got there. I said okay, so I brought the five starters out. We were there to, of course, you know, like guys like you and I were there at noon. But anyway, uh, this Bobby saw this, visualized this, and he told the five guys. He goes, "Look, going into spring training of '91, you five guys are the starters. I don't care what kind of spring training you have." 
if you guys come out of spring training healthy, which we expect you to do, we expected guys not to break down. And he said, and so we said, what we want you, you're pitching every five, you five are pitching every day all the way to the end of the season and see how far it takes us. Those five guys did the majority of the starting and took us to the seventh game of the World Series. Then over over a period of time, just like your staffs, we made 530 some starts in a row before somebody we had to skip somebody or take somebody out or we maybe missed one start or two. And so then over a period of time, making uh, your rotations under Bobby making uh, uh, 146 of the 162 games scheduled starts on average. But these guys didn't do nothing but whatever they I didn't go into the trainer's room. That was not my I stayed in my own area, always in my own area. And but we did our work in the bullpen and we did it under control. You know, Maddox come over from uh, uh, Chicago. He says, how many you need us to run? I said, how, how many you want to run? He said, what? I said, you heard me run what you think you need. I said, you're a grown man, aren't you? <laughs> he looked at me and I said, look, over here, we throw a lot and we run a little. He goes, I already like this program already. <laughs> <laughs> And, and here's the genius of Maddox, you know. Here's another coaching thing. You know, we get Maddox from uh, the Cubs. We have a meeting uh, in Atlanta, and Ted Turner comes in and says, we got one big bullet to shoot, so either going to be Maddox or Bonds. And uh, so they come around the table, you know, and all the organizations there, and they said, what about you, Leo? I said, look, I'm a pitching coach, guys. Now, who do you think I'm going to pick, you know? So it got down to the final thing, and Bobby – he had to say it was split 50-50. And uh, Bobby said, well, he said, I think we should take Maddox. He says, I'm going to tell you why. He said, with the rotation that we already have in place, being been to the World Series twice and lost both, he said, adding him to the rotation, we'll never have a losing streak. And I'm sitting there going, ah, damn, you know. So anyway, now we get Mad Dog over. And he won. And the first thing I said was, I need to know all your checkpoints, not saying, well, this is how we do it here. And that's what, uh-uh. I need to know all your checkpoints. You tell me what I'm to look for. He says, OK, Leo, he says, I need you to tell me how you guys get to the World Series every year. <laughs> and so that's that's how that relationship developed, you know. And then, of course, he went to all the other guys and saw every, how everybody was working and. In my adjustment, he said to me over a period of time, he said, look, he said, um, I know, I know Glav, all you guys love to throw a couple times in between. I said, yeah. He said, can I ask you something? I said, what's that? He said, if I feel good with my pitches, he said, I'll throw once. He said, if I don't feel good with a certain pitch, I'll throw twice. I said, that's perfectly fine with me. You know? I mean, what's, how tough is it? It's not that difficult to adjust the individual. Glavin, hell, he would throw. He wanted to throw the day before he pitched, you know, which he said to me, Leo, I need about five minutes, right, right today. I said, well, let's go. I didn't say, oh, my God, no, you're pitching tomorrow. I said, no, let's go. What do you do? He goes, I need a little uh, feel for a certain thing right here. I said, well, come on down. Let's figure And it wasn't no major deal. But when he left that bullpen, he felt like he was going to be have an excellent game the next day. What are you, you scared know, of? He- yeah, you, we all take – I used to have guys uh, double up sometimes early in the season for sure because yeah. that's what I did, and I knew I knew the benefits if, if it fit what a, what a guy that I had 
was a field kind of guy and he needed to yeah. more war work. Um, and then there's also the later in the season when I used to skip guys' sides. I just say, hey, you're skipping a side. You've had two really tough games. We're going to mm-hmm. take a blow without really taking a blow, you know, not giving mm-hmm. you missing a start or anything. And but that's all the eye test. Like that's that's, like that's all that's all, all your feel all. and the pitcher's feel. That's between you and the pitcher. Exactly. And if you feel that and he feels the same thing, then that's what you do. You know, it's funny you said that Bobby made that comment about we won't then we won't have any losing streaks. And right. you know, you remember when Pedro Martinez went from Montreal to the the Red Sox? He yeah. went to the Red Sox, and I think the Red Sox gave him a whole ton of money. Yeah. And and I remember people were going, how can you give this little thin little guy that much money, man, for that many years and stuff like that? And and I remember I remember talking to one of my pitchers because they we were we, you know how pitchers talk about other teams and they go, guy, how do they give Pedro that much money? And I go, because they aren't going to have any losing streaks anymore. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. You know, there's That's not right. many there's not very many pitchers in the history of the game that you can say that. No. You know, that's a real number one. You know, they, they always throw the number one out. Well, there aren't but only a handful of number ones in the whole league. There's not a number one on every team. No. And, every, and the press likes to say, well, this is their number one. Well, their number one might actually be a number three. Well, that, you know, yeah, that's no question was, about it. There was a lot of there teams was where many they years when on I our was, staff On our staff, they'd be a fourth or fifth starter. Right. You know, right. the ones that they called number one or two. We had a young well, pitcher we, named David Need, a right-handed pitcher. You yeah. know, they projected him as a number one. And I looked at them and I said, what? Number one? Now, listen, I like David Need. And Colorado picked him the first pick in the draft when they during the expansion. I remember. I said, I said there's nothing wrong with David Need. I like David Need. I said, but he's a number four, number five, not a number one. And there's nothing oh, yeah. wrong with being a number four or number five. We yeah, will right. constitute the number one. They will constitute <clears throat> number one. Uh-huh. In, in your mind, when you say a guy's number one, what's the checklist you go through intuitively? Stopper. He's going to, you know, if, if he's going to stop a losing streak or he's going to, he's going to, he's going to play, pitch a, a good game, all, you know, all the time. It's the consistency of excellence, the high standard of excellence. And, when you looked at our guys, you know, I mean, fortunately there was three of them that were number ones. <laughs> but then again, Danny Nagel was a great pitcher. Steve Avery, Kevin Millwood. Uh, yeah. And the list goes on and on, you know, Russ Ortiz, Jarrett Wright, uh, John Burkett, uh, you know. So those are number ones, you know. I mean, not, it, it doesn't have to be pure stuff either. It can be your mindset. It can be your change of speeds. It can be your control. Johnny Sane taught me one thing, and I'm sure Mark knows this. There's five ways to get a hitter out. Stuff, movement, change of speeds, location, and motion. All five play a part in getting somebody out, and there's different individuals that will uh, be different than the other. For example, Maddox, movement, right? Great control, movement. Tom Glavin, change of speeds. Smolsey, stuff and control. Uh, Kevin Millwood, just a a bulldog, you know, uh, Russ Ortiz, like he throws a heavy ball. Uh, uh, Steve Avery, you know, he had four pitches when he signed number one pick. And when he had that success at 21 in the big leagues, they asked me what I taught Avery. And I said, nothing. They said, what do you mean? Nothing. 
I said, well, he had his pitches when he signed. I said, it was my job to make sure he kept what he, what he has, yeah. you know? So these are things that you look for. What are, what are some things you had Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz? Those are, those are three big names people know. And you the way you coach is ideal. You're a two-way guy. You're taking what they have and you're, you're uncovering and discovering their abilities and going with it. What are some things they taught you? Well, what they taught me was uh, 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 delivery-wise was your direct uh, alignment to home plate. I mean, what happens was, is in the, you know, if, if you look at some of their film and when they lifted their leg up and they landed, uh, there, was, there could be a foot-width difference in left or right, depending on which side of the plate they were working. And uh, uh, Maddox came over and taught us that, you know. And then uh, uh, as far as – in other words – it's none of this side saddle stuff, okay? The pitcher was on the mound, on the rubber, facing the catcher, and right. what we had to, what we wanted to make sure we did is when we lifted our leg and our and our landing leg went forward, that it went directly to where the target was. So, in other words, moving in and out, whatever, you know, you could you stepped a, just a hair different. It's a half a foot width, and that's how intricate they got with all this. And then I introduced that to all the other pitchers over uh, since after '93. And they all loved it. It was such a simple way to get to your target. And then over over the years, you know, Maddox didn't care about runners. You know, he told Bobby that that uh, uh, if you want him to throw over, you tell him when to throw over. He said, I don't, you know, it doesn't bother me. Because he felt that it was all about – he was all about making pitches. All about making pitches. Glavin was all about going strike one, then never giving into the strike zone again. In other words, he would get – and Mark will tell you in that game against Cleveland, he was winning one to nothing. <clears throat> and um, and uh, he said, I guess I'm going to have to go in on him a little more, Leo, next time around. I said, well, no, you can. You got two options. He said, what are they? I said, we can go out a little further and see if they follow you out. He said, if, I said, if they follow you out, then you're in the same boat as you were before. I said, but if, if they follow you out and they're getting good wood on the ball or they're not following you out, then you have to go in to open it back up and Basically, he just went back outside and they followed him out, fortunately. Otherwise, it could have been, hard, it been a more difficult game to pitch. But in other words, that was his mindset, you know, as far as stubborn, never giving in. With Smoltzy, you believe it or not, Smoltzy couldn't throw a changeup. He, he had such great breaking stuff and his fastball was exploding. He'd had, he had this thing against changeups. He just couldn't, you know, he'd want to, you know, give it away or try to make it look like he was really going to throw it hard, just screw it up. So I thought I looked at his delivery and I thought, what a perfect delivery for a split. So I thought, you know, I'm thinking, okay, do I teach, I have to make up my mind. Am I going to teach him the split to go with his fastball, break a ball, or am I going to leave him alone and stay stubborn with the change? Well, what I did was Bruce Suter lived in Atlanta. So I'm going to, I called Bruce next to meet me for lunch before I went to the ballpark one day. I said, give me everything you know on the split. I said, I'm about to show it to Smoltz. We went over everything over lunch for about an hour where you really don't spread your fingers very far at all. And, and, uh, I said, I'm going for it. Shit. Smolty. Oh, excuse me. Smolty picked it up in no time. And then all of a sudden he had to kill her split. And now he went fastball, breaking ball, killer split. Well, that was a different approach there, but you know, or, um, so these are the, these three guys, but delivery-wise, it was repeating everything over and over and over again. Tommy went to a quick, quick release all the time with a. He couldn't hold runners. And he was slow going to the plate, 
But when we went to a quick release, I never used the term slide step. When we went to a quick release, it allowed him to get his, he had to get his hand out of his glove quicker. So it allowed him to get in better position to make his pitch to home plate. So, right. you know, things like that. And, and you know, and uh, so it went on and on and on as, as far as adjusting and teaching and exchanging ideas. And, and I would have them down in the bullpen say I was working with uh, a lefty named Damian Moss or a young kid like a Pedro Bourbon Jr. or whatever. I'd have one of those guys down there with me, reinforcing to these young guys what we were trying to do, you know. Because Johnny Sane taught me, he says, if you got a pitcher that's being stubborn on what you want to do, he says, you bring up a name and they'll they'll want to listen more. So I had one time this one guy, he didn't want to listen, you know. And uh, I said, well, this is what Maddox does. Okay, I'm, okay. what's he do? Okay. And you know, hell, I'd make half of it up, to be honest with you. So, you know, those are the things that you have to do as a coach to be innovative enough. But then also you have to listen to what they're saying, what they're feeling how they feel uh, and exchange ideas and uh, this and that. So, and I told, I told Maddox when he left, I said, he, I knew he wasn't coming back and he was going through the door. And I said, I want to tell you something, Mad dog. He goes, what's that Leo? He said, uh, I said, you taught me more than I taught you. And he goes, yeah, but you sure gave me some good tips. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, he went later in the year, we started going to more straight changes, righty to righty over a period of time, you know, and he had trouble some certain pit hitters. So, going righty to righty, but this is a story you guys will love. You know, every, and Mark knows this too, every pitcher has guys they can't get out, even as great as Maddox was. And the one guy he couldn't get out was Luis Gonzalez, left-handed hitter with Arizona, remember? Yep, yeah. He he could not get him out. So he told me and Bobby before the game, he goes, look, he said, if we we get, if this game, you know, look, we're going against Randy Johnson and Schilling. We know runs are going to be at a premium, okay? So he says, if the game's on the line, we will walk Luis Gonzalez. Because Bobby refused to have our guys. He hated putting guys on. He hated putting guys on because he thought our starters were good enough that they weren't going to score anyway. And they didn't think there was anybody they couldn't get out. So anyway, he goes over these scenarios for this and that, you know. And sure as hell, in the seventh inning, first base is open and the game is on the line. Bobby goes to me to Nugget. He goes, well, Leo, he goes, this is the one he said to walk with the game on the line. He said, so I guess we'll put him on. What do you think? I said, you know what I think, Bobby? He goes, what? I said, I think if I were you, I'd go out there and ask him. I said, because he knows more than we do about what the hell he wants to do. <laughs> he goes, you know what, Leo, you're right. So he goes out to the mound, looks at Maddox, and they're talking. Bobby comes down, sits down next to me and folds his arms. He goes, wait do you hear this, blank, blank. I said, what are we doing? What are we doing? He said, well, I went out to the mound to tell him to go ahead and put him on. He said, no, no, wait a minute, Bobby. Bobby goes, what do you mean, wait a minute? He goes, wait a minute. He goes, give me two pitches. If I get behind in the count, two balls and no strikes, he says, I'll put him on. He said, but I think I can pop him up to third. So Bobby looked at me and he goes, Leo, he told me he thinks he can pop him up to third. I said, no kidding. And I went, no kidding. He goes, yeah. Well, as his pitching coach, I said, well, this is going to be a cutter above the hands if he's going to pop this guy up to third, you know. He popped him up to chipper in foul territory. Wow. Um, I'm sitting there going, holy mackerel, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, re- I remember the, when he was – when Maddox was even near the end of his career in San Diego, they, 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 they had the catcher blindfolded. 
and had him blindfolded and he hit the glove. <laughs> it, was, it was an unbelievable stuff. That, you know, that doesn't surprise you know, me at all. You know, Mark, he you would know, stay down in the outfield on the AstroTurf uh, when we were on AstroTurf fields. And he'd, he'd be betting the other pitcher for $100 and he could hit the third base bag from center field. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he, he won. He, you know, he would, I mean, fly, he would have it. It bounce a couple times and hit right on the bag. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I had a guy named Ray Berries who was yeah. a pitching coach that I had. He was one of the best pitching coaches ever. And he was a great guy. He was a catcher. And he was an older guy. He used to warn – he was 70 years old and he drove around – and he'd catch us in early warm-up in a game. He would get down in his street clothes, and he would catch the early warm-ups to get you <laughs> commanding the ball. And he would sit behind home plate in the minor leagues up in the stands, and he, when your rhythm and your direction was good, he would nod, like, that's good, keep it going. You know, he was amazing. And, and it was funny, he used to say, pitchers are target throwers. He says, you should never throw a ball, play and catch, throw it in from the outfield. Whatever you're doing, playing pepper, you're always throwing at a target. He says, it's habitual. That. It'll become a habit. You'll always throw to targets. He says, you should never that. let your guard. And, I, and I, I taught that to my pitchers ever since I pitched and he was there. That, that is a great approach, an outstanding approach in the – and, and for, for the kids that are listening too, you know, uh, uh, Maddox used to say, everybody thinks I'm as smart as can be. He said, but you can't, you don't realize how smart, if you can throw a con control a fastball like I can, he said, that makes you smart. Yeah. You know, it, Leo, I always, uh, I was going to say, I share a story. Uh, you guys were playing over at boardwalk and baseball and I was at uh game Maddox was pitching in and a young kid from the Royals got a, hit a triple off of him, I think, the left center field, left-handed hitter. And I was sitting with Jim Fergosi, and the next day we were over in Orlando at your guy's place, and uh, uh, Fergosi and I were sitting back there, and he came over and asked us. He said, hey, you, you guys were at that game yesterday. I, I, that kid that hit the ball off of me, the, the, the triple, tell me a little bit about him. Like, you know, this <laughs> – this is spring training, but he didn't want to give up that triple to anybody. Well, and I mean, he, you know, but that was his thirst for knowledge and to have the upper hand and be the winner, as we were talking about before we went on air. You know, no how question about it. He win? No question about it. He was he looked for everything. You know, you know, he wanted to see where a guy tapped his bat on home plate to see if he had coverage on the other outside corner, stuff like yeah. that. You know, yeah, and Just um, little you know, things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was no. just, uh, but that was, you know, it was, all of them were like that. I mean, uh, yeah. and you're, you know, and you, you wonder why, you know, you know, you sit there, you know, you sit there and watch, uh, Oral Hershiser and all those great pitchers and you sit there and go, gee, <clears throat> you know, they are really good, you know, and they're, 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 they take it to another level. And, uh, uh, but here's the bottom line guys. They didn't miss starts. And I think and I was talking to Will a little bit before we guys come on. The greatest teacher a pitcher has is innings pitched, and they've taken that away from the pitchers. What a wow. absolutely! Without totally doubt, agree. Without a doubt, you yeah. don't learn unless you go out and pitch. 
Yeah. Well, that's I mean, the thing is you can't you can't learn from the best pitchers because there's very few of them out there that right. do that anymore. Right. right. That's true. You know. I mean, I don't I mean, know. I, my idol was Bob Gibson. So I yeah, wanted to complete every, everything I started. I wanted to complete. Well, that's that was our mindset then, Mark. I mean, when we were trying to get to the big leagues, if we were starting in the minor leagues, if I, if you didn't get a complete game, you felt like you, you know, you weren't as good as you can be. Right. Right. But how it can change, I don't know. I think it's. I think you could. I think if you had the people in place and the right people in place, you could you could revert back to some of that. But it'd have to start after you sign someone and establish a, a, a rotation at each level in your farm system and have your best arm start and then uh, and, you know, and let, let them pitch. You can't be afraid. Well, you know, Look, creating more sore arms because they're so afraid of getting sore arms that they're in, 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 in what they're doing is, is they're raising the risk of arm injury by what's by the philosophies that are out there now. Right. Not lowering the risk, but raising it. Yeah, yeah. No, Somebody absolutely. needs to sit down with the owners and just say, you know, have you had enough? And are you are you willing to listen? Because it's not working. You know, uh, you know the, the, the I won't mention the organization, but they, they paid some guy to come in $800,000 a year to keep their players healthy. And oh, they geez. have some of the most guys on the disabled list since he's come on of any organization in baseball. Uh, and it is, it's, it's frightening. It's frightening. Well, and it's sad. Yeah. Well, if you know, it, it is, I mean, you know, it, it, I don't understand why more pitchers don't realize that. Of course, I guess they're not brought up that way anymore with travel baseball and everything like that, that uh, what goes on with it. And, um, but hopefully uh, somebody will, the light bulb will go on with somebody, some organization that thinks you can build a rotation. I mean, we expected four guys to pitch 200 innings and uh, not the fifth starter because, you know, sometimes you would skip a fifth starter if you had a, an off day in the schedule. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't see anything wrong with expecting four starters to pitch 200 innings. The other, that's not a lot. And the other thing is, is that, we always felt that your starting rotation took care of your bullpens, but the bullpens are getting blown up, especially the setup guys. They're well, getting blown uh, up. As, as good as they all supposedly are in math, if my starters are going seven innings and my bullpen is well-rested and strong for a whole season, you know, that there's common sense, right? But if I'm taking all my starters out in the fourth and fifth inning, then my bullpen, I got to fill more, way more innings every year. Well, I, I guess it, and what do they do? They they bring in a, half the time you bring in a reliever and they just called him up. Then after he pitches, yeah. they send him back down. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. I don't know how many changes there were. What was it? They averaged 31, 31 pitching changes in one year on some of these ball clubs. Oh yeah, at least. I mean, at I least. expected. Cheryl used to ask me. He goes, "What do you expect?" I said, "I expect whatever eleven we break with." That's the 11 we finished with. He goes, well, that's impossible. I said, well, in my mind, it's not. You know, in my mind, it's not. And by damn, we come close a few times, like maybe use 15 guys in a year, 16, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like I was saying, most of the, the injuries weren't arm. Right. They were a groin or a calf or an ankle or something. Yeah. You know, you know? I mean, uh, I don't know. All no, I know is that uh, – 
I got to experience the best of the best. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, the greatest, greatest 15, 16 years I ever spent in my life with Bobby Cox and that dugout and with the greatest players and pitchers in the history of the game. And, uh, uh, but what they did was very simple. They kept it so simple. You got Maddox going into the hall of fame, goes in the hall of fame with three pitches, right? Two seam fastball cutter change. Right? Glavin two and a half pitches, right? Mark fastball change up and then occasional breaking balls or so to lefties. And then you had Smoltz with nasty fastball breaking ball split. I'm not saying, you know, they're saying now, oh, this guy's got five pitches. If he goes to this over here, over here, hell, if you got five pitches, one of them might be good. You know? Yeah, and you can't command any of them. Right. No, yeah. hell no. no. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell the story I've told it before with Dennis Martinez. Yeah. Dennis Martinez was with the Orioles for years, and he was always an unbelievable prospect, and he won a lot of games with the Orioles, and he had some off-field issues and stuff. But he used to have, like – an arm, different arm angle for every pitch. And he had about five pitches, six different pitches. Yeah. And he could actually throw them. I mean, they were good, but they weren't consistent because, you know, you can't stay consistent when you throw that many pitches. So he goes over to Montreal. He's with Larry Bernarth over there. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm talking and years later, and I had a relationship for Dennis from Baltimore. Now he's with me in Cleveland. Yeah. He's at the, back end of his career but he's still very very good oh, he's still good and he says i said dennis will you talk to the pitchers today about when you felt like you became a a, a really good pitcher and he said sure so i had all the pitchers in winter haven out in the grass out in the outfield and i said hey i want dennis dennis is going to talk to you guys about when he became a pitcher and he goes you know, when I was with Baltimore, I threw all these different pitchers, all these different arm angles and everything. And he says, when I went to Montreal, he says, Larry Bernarth and I talked. And I came up with the realization that I have three really good pitches. I have a fastball I can command. I got a breaking ball I can throw for strikes anytime I want. And I got a change up. And he says, that's all I need. He says, so I started throwing all those pitches and I could throw them in any count. He says, that's when I became a pitcher. He says, I didn't have to throw from different arm angles, different types of pitches. He says, I just, I just focused on the three best pitches I had and commanded them. And that's when I became a good pitcher. And, you know, he threw a perfect game in his career in Dodger stadium. I mean, Dennis is, is the, he won the second, he's won the second most games by any uh, Latino pitcher. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we're not talking about a slouch here. We're talking about a guy, but no, he no, 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 no. He was nasty. He'd break and he stuff. learned. He learned throughout his career what he had to do, and that's what good pitchers do. They, they do. learn when they got to adjust. You know, Oral Hershiser, we broke out a changeup on him when we had him, and he said, "Oh God, that makes it a lot easier." He said, "You know, he he'd start throwing some behind count changeups when he used to throw really hard sinkers." Sure. And, 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 and guys would make outs and he wouldn't have to throw any more pitches. And, you know, this is guys that learned. And I also had throughout my career, I had a few guys that were really good major league pitchers. I mean, Cy Young Award winners, some of them, big yeah. winners for part of their career. But when they started to lose it, they lost it for good because they refused to make any adjustments. Right. They, I had those. I, I remember guys used to call them the guy, don't let a star fall on you. Well, 
if you get a pitcher that doesn't want to make adjustments after he's had really good career and he figures that I'll just keep doing the same thing, even though I don't throw as hard or I don't have the action on my pitches, right. I'm not going to adjust. Well, then you're going to have a star fall on you because everybody thinks the guy's going to be great, but he's not great anymore. Right. Well, you had, we had John Burke. Remember the, uh, uh, Burke, yeah. he ended up pitching in the all-star game for, for the, for the national league. We're, we're playing Tampa in spring training. And Bobby goes, Tampa's getting rid of Burke. Do you want to take a shot at him for the fifth starting spot? I said, are you kidding me? He goes, yeah. Said, you know, he didn't pitch in relief that day against us. He was okay. Nothing great, but. They brought him in out of the pen, and because uh, we saw him in San Francisco when he was dealing uh, years ago, and uh, so anyway, said, "Heck yeah, this guy knows how to pitch." So we take him, bring him over, and I'm watching him throw. And then he pitched a game, and he tried to trick everybody, and I'm going, "God damn, you know." And he, and so anyway, in uh, watching him throw, his slider stunk. It really wasn't any good anymore. But his, he had a big curve, which was great. Nice change up. And his fastball was sneaky quick. And I said, hey, Berkey, I said, you know, we're going to have to make some adjustments. I said, uh, I don't think your slider's – I said, I think your slider's not a very good pitch. And he goes, really? I said, no. I said, if I were you, every time that you were in a slider situation in the game, I'd throw a fastball. He goes, you would? I said, yes, I would. He goes, well. So anyway, so – we played against the Pirates and Terry Mulholland, who's over in Pitt, Pittsburgh. Now I'd had him in uh, in Atlanta, and uh, so Berkey shoves it up Pittsburgh's butt, and he's throwing eighty-five miles an hour on the corners, right? And next day, next day, Holland comes over and goes, "Hey, Leo," he said, "You should have heard those Pirate hitters over there." I said, "What's going on?" He goes, "Where's all this junk this guy's supposed to throw?" <laughs> Uh, and you know what he did? They asked him what turned his his, uh, and he ended up getting twenty million the next year from Boston. He ended up, he, ended up, he said, they said, how how'd you turn your career around in Atlanta? He said, my pitching coach told me my slider sucked. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, it's true, and that's what all players want to do is hear the truth. Yeah. You know, and if they don't want to hear it, they don't. Your job is to tell them the truth. If they don't want to hear it, that's up to them. But they, you know, I had a similar one. Chad OJ was a pitcher for us in the minor leagues. I remember. And he was in AAA, and I went in there to work with him. And Chad had a great changeup. He could command his fastball really well. It was pretty straight. And uh, and he was sneaky quick. With You know, he was probably 88 to 90. Uh, sometimes it looked harder because he had such a good changeup. But he was throwing, and I watched him pitch in AAA game. And he kept throwing these sliders as a breaking ball. That's that you reminded me of that with your story. Yeah. And so I'm working with him on the side between starts. And I said, let me see the slider. And he throws it. And I go, I said, you know, that's not very good. <laughs> I said, you know, it's, it's like breaking out of your hand. They can see it and you got to force it. it. It's just not natural. I said, did you ever th- I said, you ever throw it a curveball? And he goes, oh, yeah, I used to throw a curveball, like in college or high school or something. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let me see it. He goes, okay. So he flips a beautiful freaking <laughs> 55 curveball. I mean, just snap, tight spin, had a little hump in it, but it was nice and crisp, had some late break to it. I mean, it was a very nice curveball. And I go, are you kidding me? I said, throw another one. 
He throws another one. I go, boy, that's good, man. Hey, no more sliders. Let's just throw that. <laughs> that's your breaking ball from now on. So he gets to the big leagues, pitch really well for us in the big leagues. And I remember he used to use that curveball because he had the good changeup and then they had the command of the fastball. He would backdoor to lefties and lock them up all the time. Beautiful. Because they were looking for a fastball in, they were staying back on the changeup, and he would throw that breaking ball just off the plate, and would and they would take it, and it would come back on the plate. And Love you know, it. it was funny, but you know, you got to. That's what your job is: is to tell guys the truth. You, you know, on the other page, you don't ever tell them things that aren't true. You don't say that's a good one when it's not. No, hell no. And then the smart and heard him say, oh, that's a good one. And I go, no, it isn't. Yeah, no. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like I and I told one time with Maggie, I said, that's a good pitch. He goes, it was two years ago, Leo. He said, but now with Quest Tech, that's not a strike. Right. Yeah, right. I remember when, they, when they brought Quest Tech in and, you know, Maddox and Glavin were the poster boys for the corners, you know, and they brought the Quest Tech machine in to bring the pitches back to the strike zone. And they – when uh, we played the Yankees in 96 in the World Series, Jeter only hit like 240 against us. Then when we played him in two, in 1999, he hit 350. And they said, what, what, was, what was the difference in the two? I said, the difference in the two was Quest Tech. Right. Right. Now, I got a hypothetical for you two guys as a pitching coach, okay? I do my major league clubs that I do, and there's a one of the premier pitchers who has an 80 fastball, a 70 curveball, a 70 changeup, a 60 control and command of those three pitches. Yet for the last couple of years, he has done nothing but try to add a cutter and a slider into that mix. And he still wins his games, but he gets beat so many times on those two subpar pitches that he makes for mistakes. And well, I, I, yeah, I always felt like, that cutter strikes or slider strikes, mediocre slider strikes or cutter, cutter strikes go the furthest of any pitch in the game, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. And and he's on the big stage. He's given some up. And I, I and, and I cover this guy. I like this guy. I, I, I think he's smart, but not that smart. I think they're leading him down the wrong path with – uh, sweepers and wider sliders and all their other new little tricks. And I go, man, if I had an 80 fastball, a 70 curveball, and a 70 changeup with plus control and command, boy, I could be awful good. Uh, and I, I just don't under, understand it, you know. Well, a lot of it, I think, is is they're telling you what to throw. Right. Um, and if he's actually calling his own game, then there's too many choices. Right. You know, there, there's such a thing as too many choices, yeah. you know, and I, what drives me, I can tell immediately what the scouting report is and whether analytics is calling the game. When I watch a guy pitching in a game mm -hmm. and he's facing a guy in a long at bat and he throws him two sliders that both back up and are really shitty and the game and the count just keeps running out. Now he's got to make a money pitch and the catcher puts down the slider and I go catcher. Did you not see the other two he just threw? And that guy hits a freaking bomb out of the ballpark. And I go, are you kidding me? Really? Really? You you just got caught up because you had to call that pitch because somebody told you that's, that's what the, the wristband said. 
that's that's difficult to do. And you know, it's it's like we used to have this saying too. And I used it in the minors, and I used it in the big leagues. <laughs> if we get if we got two pitches working, we're going to win. If we got three pitches going, we're going to throw a shutout. And if we're narrowed down, and if we're narrowed down to one, we're going to lose. Right. No. I mean, come on, you know. It it it, it, it blows my <laughs> mind when I watch this guy. And he'll get into the sixth inning, and it's a three to two game, and he's got to make a big pitch, and he throws a forty-five cement mixer slider, and somebody hits a three-run homer off of him, and I go, "Oh my gosh, what are you doing?" I well, and, and, you know, you know, the other thing, you know, when you start, you know, when you start working on those other pitches and spend all that time, then your curveball goes backwards from that seventy curveball to kind of a bastardized slurve that's not as sharp in 12-6 as it used to be. I've learned over the years, too, Will, that it, that guys want to work on pitches when we're down the bullpen, that's fine. And you end up, if you don't square them away as far as uh, working uh, fastball command, they will neglect the fastball. I got to get my slider going. I got to get this going. I got to get my changeup going. Wait a minute. Command of the fastball is our number one priority. We'll bring those in behind it, okay? That's right. Most important thing, and it's probably now the least stressed thing. They chase all these shiny objects, and they don't build the foundational things that truly lead to success. Hey, that's pretty good. I like that. See, you learn something new. Hey, I've always said I've always said I don't know it all, and it, but I, if I learn something new every day, like just like that one pitching coach that. Uh, uh, talk to Mark about uh, the target. What you ju- how you just said that right there. Those are things I enjoy hearing something like that because it's you know they make so much sense. It's common sense. That's that's the name, that's of, the the name of our show. That's common sense with Wiley and Will. <laughs> you know it's it, it, it's refreshing because if you turn on the TV, you would think that you were watching a, a calculus class some nights now. Yeah, uh, with oh, all I the know. different data and stuff. So, hey, Mark, they had to... some number on. I, I was watching uh, MLB. I was watching one of the games, and you know, the ticker thing goes across the bottom. Yeah, they start throwing these percentages and numbers. Oh. Like the Orioles have a chance. Uh, this is their chance to lead the league in stolen bases. You know, I'm like, who really cares? I don't well, care. Really care. All well, these numbers. That's for you know the what, game. I'm glad. I'm glad to see the Orioles are doing well. I mean, uh, I, it's good yeah, to see too. them. And, you know, like they got a big series against the Yankees coming up. In, and I don't know if it's in Baltimore, New York, to be honest with you. But I think it's in Baltimore. But it's going to be, you know, they'll they'll pack the joint. And it's good to see uh, that uh, city get a good baseball team again. So, but. Um, yeah, they were, they were, I, you oof. know, Darren, Darren Holmes is a good friend of mine. Yeah, um, no, Holmesy, I had him. And Holmes, yeah, well, he he accredits you to to giving him extra years in the major leagues with the philosophy you had. Uh-huh. Anyway, he he was, you know, I told him, you know, they were losing pretty bad a couple of years ago, and I was in visiting an RAA club in Hartford when I was with the Rockies, and they were playing the Orioles AA club. And I'm sitting there the whole series watching the game. And after the series, I, I texted homie. I said, homie, hold on for two more years. I said, because you got a ton of really good players coming. Yeah, that was what, and, yeah. And, and they were all there. The pitchers were there. The catcher was there. Yeah. Everybody was there. And you could see, I said, these are, you know, we've been in the game long enough. So we know what a major league player looks like. 
Right. And when you see a whole bunch of them on one team, you know that team's going to be good in the big leagues. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's uh, you know, those guys that we had, like with the, with the regular players, like Chipper and David Justice and Ron Gant and Mark Lemke, all those guys won in the minors too. It wasn't just, well, they come up to the big leagues and now we're winning. You know, it was it. They won in the minors too at every level. And, uh, you know, it's like you said, you can put, you know, there they are right there. Now you're, you're adding up the numbers and going, this is pretty good. Well, that, you know, that's a good point, you know, because there's so much about development in the minor leagues, but the best developments if you're winning. No question. There's no question about it. When I was with, when I was with the, the, the uh, Indians, when we were really good for all those years, um, we had a case up in the, the, up in the, uh, uh, general managers, you know, up in the the hallway that went to the general managers, assistant general managers, and all those guys. Even mm-hmm. the owner, he had a he had a office, but they had a case, and they had all the championship rings from all the minor league teams there too. Sure, there were a ton of them from over years, and so these kids come up, and they know they're expected to win, and they expect to win because they've won their whole life. And That's the right. other thing is, in the minor leagues, we get so much into development sometimes you know we feel we forget that you know in most cases how many major league players are on every minor league team there's not a lot of major league players on every minor league team no but there are a couple important ones that you want them to perform when they get to the big leagues so it's really good when they're in a winning environment that's why you take a guy that's maybe a veteran minor league pitcher and you put him to close yeah. games out in double a. So your double a pitchers are getting wins instead it's, of no it's, decisions. That's, and that's the to do, you know, you, you sign reg, uh, position players that aren't going to make it, but they're real good double a that's to protect the young ones and get them a win, get them a feel for winning. You know, Oh, he had a great game. He was over four, but he had some good swings. Well, that ain't going to have that kid feel good. You know, no, no, you know, if you go for four and your team wins, you still get something out of it. And you, hey, here's another good one too that Bobby used to tell me: don't ever, don't when we're going to take a pitcher out, Leo. This is my very first year with him. He goes, we're going to take a pitcher out. He says, don't ever say you think we should take him out. Just say, and don't tell me you got to get him out with a good taste in his mouth. I, he says, I do not want to hear that. <laughs> I said, okay, you'll never hear it from me. <laughs> Oh, you want to get him out? Let's get him out with a good taste in his mouth. He says, I don't want to hear that. You're in the big leagues now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get oh, well, it's all different, different mindset, you know. You know, it's 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 a confidence. It's probably more not a good taste in his mouth. It's probably you knowing that if he comes out, it's a good confidence booster for his next start. Yeah. Yeah. You're well, right. Especially but, if the guy's been scuffling. It's like different individuals, you know. Uh you know, uh, like Smoltzy, when he was young, was a lot, a lot more emotional. Glavin was more the stoic figure, and and uh, and uh, Mad Dog was the mathematician. So, you know, Mad Dog told me he was only going seven or nine. He said because he said eight was the percentages weren't good at going eight, going eight. He said the percentages are better if you come out after seven or you complete it yourself. How he figured that out, I don't know, but I'll tell you one quick story, guys. Uh, before I head out. Uh, <laughs> we had a game in San Diego uh, against San Diego in '98 when the uh, Padres were real good with Tony Gwynn and and Caminetti and Trevor and all those guys. 
And uh, so anyway, we're ahead. Uh, runner, they had runners second and third in the sixth inning at home against them. And it's on a Friday night. And Tim McCarver's coming in to do the game the next day. And uh, so they're there scouting the game that night. And there's a short fly ball to left center. Nobody can find it. Finally, Klesko dives and makes the catch with runners on second, third, and two out. So they didn't score. So Maddox comes in the dugout. He goes, ah, what's going on out there? He said, that's an easy, that's an easy catch. What's, I said, hey, relax. I said, we, we made the play. He made the catch. He goes, yeah, Leo. He said, but that ball was in the air seven seconds. I said, yeah. <clears throat> he said, yeah, seven seconds is an easy catch. He said, four seconds is a dive, and three seconds is a base hit in fair territory. And I, I turned my head, and I went, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm going, oh, we're in a world, you know. <laughs> What in the world? And then so now we end up winning the game, and I have to go out and meet McCarver the next day to go over the pitching matchups. And he goes, were you and Maddox having words in the in the, in the sixth inning last night in the dugout? I said, no. He said, well, you made the catch or something. I said, oh, I said, I remember now. He was just upset that it was such a hard catch. He goes, yeah, but you made it. I said, yeah, Tim, but the ball was in the air seven seconds. And I, he said, what? I said, the ball's in the air seven seconds. I said, that's an easy play at fair territory. He said, four seconds is a dive and three seconds is a base hit. He goes, how in the hell do you know that, Mazzoni? I said, hey, I've done my homework, Tim. I know what's going on down here. I had to run into clubhouse and say, hey, Mad Dog, I, I told you a, a seven-second story. He goes, that's good coaching, Leo. <laughs> that's great. That's funny. That's funny, man. Yeah. We, but anyway – we got so many stories we can tell, and uh, I certainly uh, hope you have me on again. That's for sure. Love. To. Well, we're going to have you on for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Can. We can do as many as you want. We've had you on for, I think you threw nine innings today, an hour and 17 minutes we kept you on, and I didn't want to come out the mound and see if you wanted to come out because you were rolling, and I think you could roll probably for another hour. I know we got to get well, you I, out of here. We can roll for another two or three hours if you want. Oh, easily. You said you got to be out of here at two o'clock. We're at one forty-seven yeah. right now. I got one last question for you. You mentioned his name a, a bunch of times on the show. We do a show with Jim Cott. I do one with him on Fridays called Cott's Corner. We're happy. We're lucky to have the Hall of Famer with us on the network. He mentions Johnny Sane at least once a show as a guy who credits oh, yeah. to his pitching. What's so significant about Johnny Sane? Johnny Johnny Sane was a guy who was so far ahead of his time. In other words, he had the original spinner. As you, Mark would know, and George yeah. Will would know, he yeah. had the original spinner, and he would have that showing. He was teaching everybody the proper spins on sliders, fastballs, changeups, etc., and the consistency of those spins. Then he had his pitchers throw as much as they wanted. He never said no to a pitcher who wanted to throw in the bullpen. So he did that. He didn't care about running. If you want to run, go ahead and run. He said, "You know, that's okay, that's fine." But he said, "Our job is to make pitches and it's to get touch on the ball and change speeds." And then he would, you know, and then he would, uh, uh, he always wanted pitchers throwing some some sort, you know, always wanted them throwing a baseball, always wanted a baseball in their hand, getting a feel for everything. And then, like I said, his concentration was on, he loved movement, loved movement. He loved the change of speeds, you know, and um, and breaking balls. He His was the, and Jim Cotton and I see each other all the time. He goes, hey, Leo, throw, turn, and pull. Well, what Johnny taught was the greatest breaking ball teacher in the history of the game, and he showed it to me when I was a young pitching coach in 1979 about when you throw a breaking ball, you have the ball centered in your hand, not off to the side, 
and you throw it first before you turn it. In other words, your hand goes forward just a hair before you turn it and then pull the ball in. Once you get out over your leg, pull the ball in. So it was a throw, turn, and pull breaking ball. So then he shows me this. He sticks out his arm. Say, say Mark, you're right-handed pitcher, and I stick out, I'm standing behind you, and I stick out your right arm. He says, now pull it in just a little. So I bend it a little bit toward the first baseline. Okay? He said, now turn the ball over. I turn the ball over. He goes, that's a very short breaking ball. He says, now pull your arm in a little more. Turn the ball over. That becomes a little bit bigger breaking ball. Just turn it in, pull it in a little more, turn it over. That becomes a short curve. Then he says, pull it in all the way. You pull it in all the way, that's a big curve. So he said, you don't have to change grips on sliders or curves. Whatever ball, whatever grip you have, it, how much you pull that ball in will be determined how big it breaks. You want a small control break? You want a big break? And that's what I taught Smoltzy. That's the, th the same thing I taught Smoltzy. And he threw his breaking ball for a long time across like a four-seam fastball, only went through the concept of centering the ball, throw, turn, and pull. So Jim Cott would see me all the time and go, Leo, yeah, throw, turn, and pull, throw, turn, and pull. I said, you got it right, Jim. And that yes. way, as Mark can tell you, a lot of guys get in trouble trying to create that pitch too early. They try to create it way behind them. And he, and he used to always have his hand out in the front and go to fastball, 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 turn, spin, spin the ball, turn it over for change of speeds. And he all did it with his hands and wrists. And he threw a lot of those pitches with a loose wrist, nothing tight or nothing locked in. Well, when you throw pitches with a loose wrist or nothing light or nothing, anytime you lock up, you raise the risk of arm injury or restrict yourself, you raise the risk of arm injury. He had that, he want, he taught guys how to free up your arm action and spin the ball and get proper spin on it control the pitch movement as opposed to power, okay? Now, you can combine the both of them, but he would he would rather have a fastball that moved instead of a fastball that went straight. But if you had both of them, he said, I love a pitcher with power, Leo. He said, but how many guys have power? Well, it depends on today on who you're listening to. Apparently, everybody throws hard, but I don't I don't think they throw as hard as they say they're doing. I, I subtract five miles an hour from any, anybody that tells me what a number is on a particular pitch because they don't time it coming across home plate anymore. They time no, it coming out of the pitcher's hand. But anyway, that's, that's a whole different – that's for another show. But anyway, those were the types of things that Sane, you know, and he was always trying to figure out, you know, he said, you know what Glavin does, Leo? I said, what's that, Johnny? He goes, he sticks that ball out in front of you. Then he's got a string on the back of it. And right before it gets to the strike zone, he pulls it back. <laughs> or I brought him down to Chicago when we were playing the Cubs. He was in Grove City, Illinois. And I said, Johnny, oh, I don't want to bother nobody. I said, get your butt down here. I've got Maddox and Glavin thrown on the side. He goes, okay. So I bring him down there. And I, stay, I introduced uh, him to Maddox because I told Maddox about his history. And Glavin already knew him. And uh, uh, he said, man, he says, that Maddox got some kind of movement. Oh, Glavin's got a great change of speeds. So he recognized those things early. But here's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. Tom Glavin was a young pitcher down in the instructional league. I was a young pitching coach. Johnny Sane was running the pitching. Glavin's shoulder was bothering him. So they were going to send him home. And Johnny said to the people, he said, to the front office trainers, let me have him for five days. If he still has a sore shoulder five days, we'll send him home. 
Well, there's no way in hell you could do that now in today's game. But then you could. He, take, he says, Leo, I want you with me the whole way. He gets Glavin on the mound. And we go down after practice is over, just me, him, and the catcher. And he has Tommy crow hop off the mound. In other words, get receive the ball back, crow hop off the mound downhill to the catcher, 60 feet, 6 inches. He does it five days in a row. Not throwing hard, just crow hopping, going down the hill. His arm was better. He got rid of the tendonitis that he had, and he pitched two shutout innings. I took two days off and pitched two shutout innings, and his wow. shoulder never hurt anymore. In 1992, Tom Glavin's shoulder was bothering him, and we did all our bullpen sessions, whether his arm was bothering him or not, going downhill to a catcher at 60 feet, 6 inches. He remembered it, and I remembered it. He goes, oh, I forgot. I said, okay. Now, when we, when you, it's, it's the most natural way a pitcher can throw a baseball. And we just didn't do it with fastballs. We did it with fastballs, change-ups, and curves, or sliders that Tommy had. So anyway, those are things all came from Johnny Sane. All these throwing programs came from Johnny Sane. Check the history of Johnny Sane and see how much success he had every single place he went. And people didn't like him. You know why a lot of people didn't like him? Because he was smarter than the ones that were in charge. Right. Right. That's right. right. That's the theme yeah. of our game now. Well, Mark, Mark and Will, any last questions for Leo? Leo, you've been fantastic. I, I agree. We could go on for hours, maybe days with it. But uh, Will and Mark, any last questions? Well, we're gonna we'll have a we'll have a special session with you and we'll talk about pitch development and that kind of stuff. Okay. Because I think I think that that's really uh, lost discussion. You know, parents are, are, are dying to hear, you know, what their kids really should be doing. Coaches Absolutely. are dying to hear how to do it because nobody teaches them how to do it anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all what's on the screen rather than what the feel is for a pitch. And, uh, you know, there's limits on the slot, you know, like a guy tries to throw a curveball and he tries to throw a top to bottom curveball and he throws from a low three quarter slot. Right. You got to teach the guy, no, yours is going to have this angle right here is the good one's going to be like this. Otherwise, you're going to change your arm angle every time you throw it and everybody's going to see it. Plus, you won't command it. You got it. And you know what, Mark, we can cover that all you want. Uh, my wife needs her computer. She's going to work for a couple hours. <laughs> okay, she's right here laughing. She goes, I got to go to work. Yeah. Listen, we can talk about this all you want, anytime. Okay, yeah. buddy. We'll close we can make, it, make it a regular show. I don't care. It's we'll fun get, to get the, get the message okay, well, out. Stay, stay on for a couple minutes after the music plays, and we'll be good. We won't make her late for work. But with that, I want to thank Mark and Will. A day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Special guest, Leo Mazzone. One of the greatest pitching coaches, if not the greatest pitching coach of all time in Major League Baseball history. Phenomenal information, Little League Baseball, all the way up the front offices. Got information out to 72 countries today to our 20,700 subscribers. Thank you. The number should be up over 40 tomorrow. Uh, we appreciate everything you're doing. This is episode 231 on Real Voices of the Game in the Books. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Leo. Thanks, Leo. You're welcome. <laughs>